Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to tune into this message. My name is Harrison. I'm the pastor here at Kingdom Church. You are listening to part two of our series, The Problem of God. Sit back, relax. Here it is. Wherever you fall on the faith spectrum, maybe you consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're like, I'm kind of a skeptic. I don't exactly know where I am, what I believe. Uh, Again, I just want to let you guys know that we're happy you're here. And we believe that no matter where you are on this spectrum, on this journey, God is going to speak to you uh, in some way in this series. So we're going to begin with part two, the problem of God's existence. The problem of God's existence. So what uh, this is about is how do we know that God actually exists? How do we know that God actually uh, exists? I myself, I consider myself a very skeptical person. Any people consider themselves skeptical? Like I need evidence. One thing that happened to me this week uh, is I lost my voice. And this is the first time in my life that this has ever happened to me before. And it was, it was crazy. Last Saturday, I don't know if you guys <clears throat> were here or noticed, but I was, I was kind of sick. My, my, my throat was sore. And so after I spoke, and then I did growth track, and then I went home and decided to be a family counselor. And by the end of the day, my voice was just like, it was really hurting. And uh, Sunday, I woke up, my voice was like, just like really hurting. It was, it was barely there. And then Monday... Super bad. Tuesday, gone. Like, completely gone. Like, I could not even speak. And I was like, Mackenzie and Mateos were here. I was, it's, it's really annoying if you lose your voice because you have to, like, literally, like, sign language. And I don't speak sign language, nor do I know how to sign language. And, and so I'm just, like, trying to gesture to talk to people. And it's just super, super frustrating. And why am I telling you this story? I have a confession. Before this week, uh, I didn't actually believe that people could lose their voice. Anyone else that way? Like, I would see people when they're sick and, and their voice would be kind of like groggly and like just super bad. And I'd be like, man, those people are faking it. They just want sympathy. They want people to feel bad for them. Like, you can speak if you really want to speak. But then I experienced this week and I was like, oh my gosh, I literally, like, I was trying to talk and I couldn't. And it was crazy. And we don't have to go into my fears that I would never speak again or things like that. But I got better. I'm here this week. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm a skeptical person, meaning I need evidence before I believe something. And for a lot of people, when, when it comes to God, a lot of people are like, you know, and there's this, this kind of this perception that people don't believe in God because they're angry or there's some type of hurt or pain in their lives. But I truly believe this. There are certain people who are just like, I can't believe in God because there isn't any evidence. If God would just make himself known, if I could just see God, then I would believe. Where's the evidence? In 1 John chapter 4, it says this very interestingly enough. And this is kind of the verse that's going to take us where I want to go today. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And we'll look at that second part of the verse as the day goes on. But the part I want to focus on, the part I want to hammer in on is that first part which says, no one has ever seen God. And so what the Bible is telling us is this, quite simple, no one has ever seen God. And so what that means, this morning what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to, to, to give us answers to the question of, about God's existence. But what I want to say is this, and based on this verse and based on evidence in my own life, I have never personally seen God. Yeah. 
God has never manifested himself to me. And, and what this Bible is saying, or what the Bible says in 1 John, it says no one has actually ever seen God. And so what I want to say as we start this journey is that I cannot unequivocally, without a shadow of a doubt, sit here or stand here today and tell you that I can prove that God exists. Because I cannot bring God here to show himself. Because no one has ever seen God. We'll, we'll, we'll continue with that, with this theme, no one has ever seen God, because a lot of us are just asking ourselves, if God was real, why would he not just show himself to us? Wouldn't that be the easiest thing? Wouldn't that be the best thing for people, people to believe? Because if God just showed up here, I would believe. Hold that thought, we're going to answer it uh, as we go on. So today what I want to do, because I cannot prove without a shadow of a doubt that God exists, that does not mean that there is not evidence that God exists. Think to a courtroom, for example. The jury, you guys know what a jury is. The jury will come to a conclusion without ever actually seeing the crime. What they do is they take all the evidence, they take all the facts, they put it together, and they come up with a verdict, even though they've never actually seen what happened. And so what I want to do today is I want to build up a case for God's existence. I cannot bring God here in person, but I believe that there are facts and there are clues for God. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack and I want to look at some of the clues for how we can know that God actually exists. And so what I want to do today is this, and to whoever's listening to this in this room and, and whoever else, I want us to go where the evidence leads. Not where we hope that the evidence leads, but let's go where the evidence actually takes us. So as we start, I want us to look at some clues for God. Last week, we looked at the problem of science, and I got very scientific on us, more scientific than my brain gets usually. Uh, this morning, as we begin for, with looking at clues for God, I want us to again look back into science just for a moment. Are you guys okay with that? Come back with me to 1929. In, 19, <laughs> in 1929, a man by the name of Edwin Hubble made what is now known as one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century. Hubble, in his home in California, or I should say his laboratory in California, he had a telescope, and he was able to see deeper and further into the universe than anyone before him. And as he looked through his telescope, what he was able to see was that the universe was actually moving the galaxies were moving rapidly and faster than anyone ever knew or imagined. And, and as he looked through this telescope and as he did his scientific research, he came to this conclusion almost literally, literally almost 100 years ago that modern cosmology now confirms what he was able to deduce was that the universe is expanding. The universe is growing. What he found out was that our universe is not actually, uh, it's not actually, it, it's, it's, it's going to actually end at some point. It's finite. And so through all of these things, as he was looking in and as he realized that our universe is expanding, he came to the conclusion that if our universe is expanding, all matter, all space, all time, all of these things must have a common point of origin. They had to have started somewhere. If you guys were with us last week, we sort of briefly touched on this, this, this idea, but I want to touch on it more today. What he found out is that all energy, all matter, must have a common point of origin if our universe is expanding. And what we saw last week is that this is often referred to as the Big Bang. 
that moment in history where, where the world sort of began. And, and what we looked at last week, what we figured out, I gave you guys a stat, if you guys remember. I said the stat for uh, the chances of our universe coming into existence the way that it did perfectly and uh, viable for human life was one in 10 to the power of 138, which is a ginormous number. We said, I tried to like, come up with a number. I said, it's like one in 10 quadrillion quadrillion. Just super, super limited odds. And last week, I was kind of talking about how faith, about how science also has faith. But this week, I want to look at how science is actually a clue for God. So we look at those extremely small stats, but there's more. There's more I want to look at today. So astrophysics and astrophysicists tell us that when the universe came into existence, there was 122 variables that had to be lined up in such a particular way, such a perfect way, in order for the universe to come into existence in the way that it did. These are laws of physics. There was 122 variables. And so what astrophysicists tell us is that if any of those variables was off by even a a smallest of a fraction, our universe could not come into existence. Matter could not coalesce and things could not come together and and, and really matter and energy, it it would cease to be. It could not expand. It could not come if one of these variables was off. One of these laws of physics was off. But here's the problem. Because we can, we can say that, for example, the Big Bang happened by chance. It just, it just happened. It's extremely small chances. But the question that still leads us to ask is where did the laws of physics come from? How was there a law for physics before the world actually began? And this is a question that scientists struggle with. Because you could say that the laws of physics came into existence at the exact same time as the Big Bang, but that wouldn't make sense. Because the laws already had to be in place in order for them to do what they actually had to do when the Big Bang took place. You guys see what I'm saying? It's it's a clue that there has to be something more. But despite all of this, certain scientific people, as much as they know that the odds are stacked against them, they say, well... Perhaps it's just chance. We're here by chance. And so there's two principles. One is known as the fine-tuning principle, also known as the anthropic principle. And what this principle states is that the universe, everything in it, was created for human existence. And this is really the idea of a divine creator, right? This world, everything in it was fine-tuned. It was made perfectly for us as people. Now, the other theory, and and the the simplest name for it, is the lucky us principle. And what this principle states is that, yes, the chances of our universe coming into existence in the way that they did perfectly, the laws of physics and matter and gravity and everything perfect for humans, yes, the chances are low, but lucky us, let's just celebrate it. These are two theories. And it's funny, for the lucky us principle, they'll essentially say this. They'll say the lucky, it's just like cards. It's like poker. When you get a good hand, you celebrate it, right? It's just, it's good luck. Now, I myself, and this is a confession, I'm a huge poker fan. I'm a huge Texas Hold'em fan. Any poker fans in the room? Some of you guys are like, poker and pastors, does that even match? What I tell Christy all the time, poker, Texas Hold'em specifically, is not gambling. Uh, It's a game. And it's a strategic game. And, and, and so uh, I actually, I have, I have another job where I work with young people. And uh, I was working with this one kid in the summertime. And it turns out he loved poker as well. 
And so it, it kind of seemed like a perfect match in heaven, like I was about to get paid to play poker with this kid for five hours. And so as we were playing poker, when we began to play, he said something to me. He said, Harrison, I just want you to know when I play poker, I have a horseshoe up my butt. Now, that was the kosher church version of what he actually said. <laughs> Filthy mouth for a 12-year-old. But he's like, I need you to know I have a horseshoe with me somewhere, right? And that's just a term for, that's a term that means I'm super lucky, right? He's like, I just need you to know when I play poker, I'm extremely lucky. And I'm like, okay, we'll see how lucky this kid is. about take him to school. And so... You don't need to understand how Texas Hold'em works, but basically at the end of each hand is when you see the cards. You don't see them at the start, what the person has. And so at the end of the first hand, we bet all those things, and he flips his cards, and he has two aces. And at that point, I kind of get like goosebumps. <laughs> I'm like, maybe this guy does have a horseshoe somewhere. We keep playing. Next hand, same thing, it gets to the end, and he has two kings, pocket kings. And at that point, I was like, I was like literally shocked because I was watching this kid shuffle, and he got two kings. And then I was like, like, maybe he is lucky. We played again. Next hand, he gets pocket aces. At that point, I realized this isn't luck anymore. You guys know what I'm saying? I was like, no one is this lucky. He's, he's, he's cheating. And it's funny, I, then my brain started to click, and I, I went back to a prior conversation, and I remembered that he told me one of his passions in life is card tricks. <laughs> And what I realized after a while is that he had figured out a way to manipulate the cards, even when he shuffles it and I watch him, where he's able to get exactly what he wants. And I was like, man, this kid's going to get a lot of money one day with his friends. But here's the thing. And I came to a logical conclusion I think anyone would play. No matter how lucky you think you are, and if you don't know poker, maybe you're thinking that you don't know what I'm talking about, but no one will get back-to-back-to-back-to-back pocket pairs. It's just, it's impossible, right? And so the lucky us principle says that the universe is fine-tuned perfectly for us, but it's just luck. And so they say it's, and there's a hand, the best hand in poker is called a royal flush. And in all my poker playing days, I have never gotten a royal flush. I've never seen a royal flush because the odds of getting a royal flush is one in 650,000. So people will say this, the odds of our universe coming into existence in just the perfect way is the same odds. It's like getting a royal flush. You're not going to just, you're not going to complain. You're not going to say, lucky us. Here we are. But what they don't realize when they say that is they are not actually comparing apples to apples. Because in order for the statistics to actually make sense, it wouldn't be like getting a royal flush once. It would be like getting a royal flush for the rest of your life every single time that someone dealt you the cards. That is the odds of our universe coming into existence in such a perfect way. And so what I'm saying is the lucky us principle logically does not make sense. Because it's like being dealt the same hand over and over again. And no matter what card game you play, just think about getting dealt the exact same hand over and over again. It would not happen. And what she would say is that there is someone or something or an outside force that is altering the way in which these cards are being dealt to me. The same way when I saw that little kid, <laughs> I knew that he was cheating. And understand this. You guys are thinking, like, shouldn't you be helping him succeed in life and letting him win? No. I never let kids win. <laughs> They gotta learn. What 
What I'm trying to say is that we can say that we are here by luck and by chance, but logic and mathematics and statistics will tell you that that is not even a viable option. There has to be something more. We're looking at clues for God. And it's funny, Stephen Hawking, uh, he himself would not subject himself to just this lucky us principle. For him, a man of science, and he never professed to believe in God, a personal creator, but even he himself said, this can't be. There has to be something more. This is what he said. He said, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller even in one part, even by one part in 1,000 million millionth, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. Look at this next part. He says, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like a Big Bang are enormous. I think, this is Stephen Hawking, I think there are religious implications. Now, Stephen Hawking died uh, a few months back, and, and there was this rumor that went around that he became a Christian on his deathbed. Uh, but I looked into it, and a lot of science and atheists got really angry at that report and said it's false. Um, doesn't really matter for our purposes today, but what I want us to see, and if you look into Stephen Hawking and his writings, what he says, he always has this idea and this belief and this reference to something more. He doesn't necessarily believe in a personal God. He doesn't ever profess a belief in the God of the Bible. But what he says, he says, the way that our universe is, the way everything is fine-tuned, there has to be something more. The lucky us principle was not sufficient for him. There has to be something more. And so, friends, we're looking at clues for God. And so the first clue that I want to see, Prince, go back for a second. You're ahead of us here. The first clue that I want to talk about is the clue from science, the clues from science. And really, the, this first half of the message is, is, is really just a, it's almost a, an add-on to last week's message, right? How, how creation, how science, how, 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 the, how the stars, how the universe, they cry out for a creator, but here's the thing, for as strong as I believe these arguments have been and, and these facts are, I think the strongest evidence is not in the stars, the strongest evidence is not even in, in science, it's not in the mountains, it's not in creation. I think the strongest evidence, the strongest clues for a creator are in us. It's in you and me. Uh, after, after service last week, uh, after we finished, uh, I ran into this lady with a baby and she said, she said, you know what? She said, all I need to believe in God is this. And she lifted up her baby. And I was like, that's because she's not crying right now. But she's like, all I need is this baby and that is enough for me to believe in God. And I'm the same way when, when I see people, when I see beauty, when I see my wife, come on somebody. It cries out for a creator. Something has handcrafted that. It's, it's not just by chance. And, and I think for our beauty, and when you look at people, when you look at, and for me, kids are great, but I actually, the thing that fascinates me the most is actually pregnant ladies. That's the thing where I'm like, like there's a person. It's, it just blows my mind. I know it's happened forever, but it's just crazy. But as great and as intricate as we are, I think in terms of clues for God and evidence for God, because we can easily rationalize and just say we're whatever, that we became beautiful by chance. But I think the stronger argument is not even necessarily in what we look like as people, but it's in how we act as people. That is our strongest evidence for God. It's, a, it's in our very being. It's in, it's, in, it's in the fact that we love. It's in the fact that we feel. And so I think... 
one of the strongest arguments from God actually comes from morality. So what I want to do now is I want to look at clues from morality, clues from who we are as people that point to a creator. When I was about five or six years old, I think I was six in the first grade, uh, I was at a birthday party. And this story is ingrained in my mind, even though it happened over 20 years ago. And I had two, there was two people playing. I was just watching. One guy was my friend. His name is Andy. And there's another kid. And they're playing foosball. Do you guys all know foosball? Yeah. It's the game with the rods and you're playing. And so there was this kid, Andy, playing against another kid. They're six years old. And this other kid had his dad right there as they were playing foosball. And what happened as they were playing, Andy and the kid, they were getting a little bit too close to the foosball machine. And as he was pushing the things, Andy actually pushed the foosball stick into his friend's stomach. Like, ugh. And now as a five-year-old, that hurts. It probably hurts at any age. But what happens next shocks me to my core to this day, and I ask myself, is this a dream or this really happened? So as Andy is there feeling bad for this kid, the kid's dad pushes the stick into Andy's stomach. And this is what he says. Grown man, he says, now you know how it feels. True story. Shocking, you guys. I can see your faces. You guys are shocked. <laughs> now, let me, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys think that what that dad did was wrong? How many of you guys think it was right? <laughs> right? The majority of people will think that what he did was wrong. It wasn't right for him to smack a little kid and the audacity to say now you know how it feels but it's interesting because I think in life in general there are a lot of things that we will agree that's just wrong like when someone cuts us off that's wrong when someone butts us in line that's wrong but here's the main question that I want to ask how do you know that it's wrong (laughs) because it hurts here's the thing If this dad were to say something of the sort, I was just protecting my son, does he have a leg to stand on? The question is, again, who are you to say? So this is my belief, and this is where I'm trying to go with things. I believe in life that that ingrained into all of us deeply, we have this sense and, and this larger understanding of what is right and what is wrong. It's what I call morality and morals, what is right and what is wrong. And I believe that ingrained in every single person, some of us it's deeper than than others, but all of us have an overarching sense of what is right and what is wrong and what I call moral law. And so what I want to argue right now is that in order for there to be moral law, you must have a moral law giver, i.e. someone who is above that says what is right and what is wrong. Because we end up getting into problems, into troubles, when we say that there is no such thing as a moral law giver. Because what happens then when it comes to morality, when it comes to what is right and what is wrong, who is to actually say? But my main argument is this, because I think as humans in general, in, in very general terms, a lot of us agree on what is right and what is wrong. And what I want us to see and what I want us to question is where does that come from? Why is that inside of us. Now, one of the main beliefs that people have, and this is what I would kind of call the Canadian belief on morality, is something that is called moral relativism or moral relativity. 
And what moral relativity says is that what is right and what is wrong for me is not necessarily what is right and what is wrong for you. How Canadian, right? I'll put it in simpler terms. Like, I'm going to do me and you do you. Whatever you believe is fine and whatever I believe, that's good too. Right? That's what, and if you were to talk to people, that's kind of what most people believe. It's like, I don't really care what you believe as long as you don't infringe on my beliefs and thus and thus. But what I want us to see, this idea of moral relativity and what I believe is the predominant worldview in Canada and, and really North America is actually illogical. And it's actually morally bankrupt. Because you see, when we do not have a standard in which we say, this is what is moral and this is what is not moral, we will end up in trouble. So, for example, moral relativism. Everyone says, whatever is right for me is right for me, not necessarily right for you. But let me tell you a few reasons why this doesn't actually make sense when we get down to the crux of the issue and why I also believe at the heart of it, no one is a moral relativist when they get down to it. So one of the biggest things right now is social movements. You guys may have heard of social movements, Black Lives Matter, hashtag Me Too, uh, even LGBTQ, LGBTQT rights. These are huge issues, right? Hot button topics where people want, and, and really all of these things when they come down to it, what people want is equality. They want to be treated as equals. Now, when it comes to moral relativism, the reason that they're actually in a direct clash with, with uh, social movements, which I'm all for social movements. Listen to me, I'm all for them because number one, they say that everyone is equal and everyone deserves equal rights. And I believe that's a very biblical and very Christian thing. So I'm for the LGBTQT rights. I'm for Black Lives Matter. I'm for the Me Too movement because what they're really proposing is equality. But here's the thing, because moral relativism says what is right for me is not necessarily right for anyone else. And so a lot of people who claim to be social movements folks also claim to be moral relativists. But this is what happens when they actually meet each other. For example, this is a hypothetical, hypothetical situation. Let's say a woman comes and says, I believe that we should be paid equally. Where are the ladies at? Anyone believe that? We should be paid the same amount as a man, especially if we're qualified at the same rate. Now, suppose hypothetical man comes into the room and he says, I believe to my very core and to my very being that as a man, I deserve to be paid more than you because I'm a man. <laughs> if you are a moral relativist, if you are someone that says morality is what's right for you, not necessarily for me, if you want to be true to your beliefs, you actually have to concede and say that what is true for you is true for you, and I can't say anything about that. You have to concede what that man is saying is truth for him, and therefore I don't have a leg to stand on. And so what's funny is a lot of times moral relativists won't actually think this far because they say, I'm for everyone. But the problem is they're actually for everyone until someone does something that directly opposes what they are for themselves. And then there's this crossroads. And that's only one thing. And so what I'm saying, when it comes to this argument, I don't believe if any of us at our hearts will act, were actually moral relativists, we wouldn't be the way that we are. I think as people, we long for justice. We long for truth to win out. How many guys have, have read a newspaper story or an article and it just makes you sick? Because someone has been, has, been, uh, has, been, has been putting down, someone has been demoralized, someone has been dehumanized. And, and all of us, we cry out and we long for justice. But where does that come from? 
because if we were actually moral relativists at heart, we should not logically care for anyone else and what they're doing because their truth is their truth. But what I'm trying to argue is that we're not. And because we are moral creatures, there is something more. There's a study that was done, uh, and Richard Dawkins, he cites this study in his book, The God Delusion. Uh, It was a study done at Harvard uh, by a professor by the name of Mark Hauser. And uh, in his, his study, what he did with these subjects is he gave them hypothetical situations. And one hypothetical situation was this. They said, suppose there was a train that was about to hit five people. Would you sacrifice one fat person in order to save these five people? This was the situation. What the test was, he wanted to see what people would say and where their morality lied. The results of the test was that 97% of the people said that they would not sacrifice the fat man. And that's the moral thing to do. And so Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he cites this for a specific reason. Because what happened in that study, they found that the atheist and the Christian did not have a very big difference in terms of what they thought was right and what they thought was wrong. In fact, it was very, very similar. And so Dawkins, his argument was there, look, we are moral humans by nature or by evolution. Our morality was passed down to us from generation to generation. That is why it doesn't, you don't need God. You don't need a God to be moral. And he used this as proof against God. However, what Dawkins did not realize is what he was pushing here is actually a Christian principle. And the principle is this. The Bible tells us that God has written the, or the law on our hearts. I'll show it to you this. In Romans chapter two, Paul says this. He says, even Gentiles, and a Gentile simply put is someone who wasn't a Christian. They weren't a Jew. They did not know who God was. He says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, meaning no one has ever taught them God's law, he says, they show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it without even ever hearing it. They demonstrate that God's law law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So Dawkins thought this puts away God, but what Paul is saying, he's saying, no, this is actually proof for God because God has written this law on our hearts. And like I said, some of us, it's it's deeper, it's deeper there, but God has written this morality into our very fibers, into our very beings, because if there is moral law, which I think most of us would agree there is, there has to be a moral law giver. Someone who has told us, and a lot of it is intrinsically written in our hearts, what is right and what is wrong. The other argument, the last argument, and I'll close with this, that uh, an, an atheist or an evolutionist would use, they would use the naturalistic argument that everything, our morality, our goodness has been passed down because that is what was most necessary for survival. That's why we are the way we are. It was just evolution. It just passed down, it passed down. Again, I want to show us a few of the limits of that one. Number one is this. Let's say, for example, we're going back to to the human rights. I think humanity, especially North America, we're crying out for equality. Men and women should be equal. Everyone should be equal no matter their their sexual orientation. Here's the thing. Both of those things, I don't think, uh, evolutionary, naturally speaking, have a leg to stand on. Number one, and don't be offended by this, woman. I'm just speaking biologically for a second. Men are anatomically 
and physically more dominant beings. Is that, is that a better way to say I'm trying to say it the best, the best way not to offend anyone. Anatomically, and, and I was with Christy, my wife was a nurse this week. I was like, I want to get the words right so I don't offend anyone. Anatomically, men are larger on average than females. On average, men are stronger than females. So we live in a time that says men and females should be treated equally. But we also live in a time where people want to be naturalists, evolutionists. But evolution, the very, the very, the, the very, the, 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 the thesis of evolution is survival of the fittest, right? That which is passed down goes on and on. And so if we're a naturalist, how can we say that men and women are equal if naturally men are stronger than female? Do you guys see where I'm going? Here's another one. Homosexuals. We want them to have equal rights, and that's one of the big things that is being, and Canada's ahead of the states in terms of that aspect of things, but let's talk naturally for a second. Homosexual is unable to reproduce. That's just science in case you guys didn't understand that. But what that means is that naturally and evolutionarily speaking, that is a disadvantage to not be able to reproduce. So therefore, how could that and why would that gene be passed down, first off and foremost, and even more so, why would we, why would we be a champion for their rights if they are, by definition, a lesser being? And you see, this, this, is, this is the conclusion that evolution and naturalism takes us to, is the fact that some people are superior to others. Some people are, are greater than others. And it's funny, Darwin, in, in his book, he took this to the natural conclusion where your minds may be going right now. This is what he said. And this is the smaller part of a larger quote. But he says, both sexes ought to refrain from marriage if they are in any marked degree inferior in body or in mind. So Darwin, the longer quote is this. He says, we spend, we spend so much time breeding our animals, worrying about them, making sure we have the best breeds. He's like, but when it comes to our own reproduction, he's like, we're not taking the necessary steps. We have women with men who are not smart enough, who are not physically attractive enough, whatever it may be. He's saying we should refrain and in a marked degree inferior in body or mind. He's saying disabilities. If you have any disability, you should not be with someone who does not have one. And so Darwin, he says this in a very light term, but I want to show you a quote and we'll see if you know where it comes from of someone who took it to the next level of what naturalism and Darwin is saying. He says this, he says, if nature does not wish that the weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle, intermingle with an inferior one. Because in such a case, all her efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years to establish an evolutionary higher state of being may thus be rendered futile. Anyone have a guess who said this? Yes. Next slide, give him the name. Adolf Hitler. You see, Hitler took the natural road that naturalism leads you to. If, if people should not be with those who are, who are superior or, or, or inferior to them, we ought to be very careful in what we do. And Hitler took it to the extreme. And he said certain races are below other races. Certain orientations are below other orientations. If you are disabled, if you are mentally handicapped, you are inferior. And what I'm just trying to do here, and I'm not saying that all evolutionists become Nazis. That's not what my, my point is. 
All I am saying is that when we take evolution and naturalism to the state in which it's telling us to go, we are going to end up in a place that is morally bankrupt and a very scary place indeed for anyone who knows anything about Nazi Germany. You see, what this is crying out for, moral, moral relativity and, and, and naturalism, I think both of, these, both of these beliefs lead us to a place that actually is illogical and leaves us with more questions than answers. And I actually believe this, friends. For most people that say I'm a naturalist or I'm a moral, relati- moral relativist, I don't actually think that they believe it. More so, I should say, I don't actually think they live it out in their lives. This is what I believe most people, especially in Canada, live like. Tell me if you've heard this before. I decide what is right and what is wrong based on how I feel, based on what I think is right. I had a conversation a few months back with someone, and that was the exact word, and I said, how did you come to that conclusion? He said, that's what I feel. That's what I think is right. But there's a problem with that. When we ourselves become the the person that makes the moral law, we are then putting ourselves in the position to be God. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't trust myself. You want to know why? You guys ever look in your closet and see clothes from five years ago? And you're like, what was I thinking? Like, why were my jean bottoms so big? Like, the pants didn't touch my thighs. What was I thinking? You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? It's funny, as humans, we want to put this pressure on ourselves. We're saying, you know what, I'll, I'll just, I'll define my own morality. I'll define what is right. I'll define what is wrong. The problem is I know myself. And I know that I change like this. And I, and I go based on feelings, not necessarily facts. And so some of us are sitting here, we'll saying, well, that's what the government is for. My morality comes from what they say is right and what they say is legal. Weed is legal, you better believe it's good for me. And that's fine if you want to live that way, but you have to understand that the government is the same as me. It's a bunch of humans. And so guess what? You guys, I don't know if you guys heard of the civil rights era in the United States, what was legal and what was illegal. Just because it was legal didn't make it moral. Exactly. And so if we want to base our morality on people, if we want to base our morality on governments, what we will find out is we will eventually and inevitably be morally bankrupt. And so what I'm trying to say is this morality in us, this moral law that is ingrained into the very fiber of our beings, it points to a moral law giver. And I'll tell you this, I'm not preaching, I told you this series was not to convince anyone, it was just to prove facts. I'll tell you for a second what I believe and where my morality comes from. It comes from the God who in Galatians chapter three said this, he said, there is no longer Gentile nor Jew, there is no longer slave nor free, there is no longer male or female, for we are all One, in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. He was way ahead of his time because it's 2018, we're still trying to figure out if men and female are equal. If they're 2019, I'm in the past. 2,000 years later, we still can't figure things out. 2,000 years later, we still have racism, we still have division. But God, the one who is the same yesterday, the one who is the same tomorrow, the one who has been the same throughout eternity, he said that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer races. There's no longer male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. You see this morality and this belief, and I know deep down in a lot of us, we feel this, and I think that points to a creator. That points to something more.
Now at the very start of the message, I said, I said, why doesn't God just manifest himself? Because if God just showed up, then people will believe. Here's this, although God himself and the person and the father, he never showed up, God did show up in a person by the name of Jesus Christ. And the world saw him and the world beheld him and guess what they did to him? They crucified him. They killed him. People are saying, if I just saw miracles in my life, then I would believe. If God just, if he just did what I'm asking, then I would believe. Jesus did the greatest miracle. God performed the greatest miracle of all. He raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know what the disciples' first reaction was? Unbelief. They didn't believe it. Like, no, that can't be Jesus. And so, friends, what what I'm trying to say is that if there's someone who is listening and they're saying to themselves, well, this evidence is great, but if God just did something, if he just showed himself, then I would believe. I just want to encourage you. I want to tell you that God showing up, God doing miracles does not always correlate to belief. And that's a theme you'll see throughout the Bible. And so perhaps instead of showing up in these big and gigantic things, God has left little clues everywhere. He's left clues in creation. He's left clues in me and he's left clues in you. And this is the beauty of what he says. He says, although no one has ever seen God, he says that when we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Do you know why he says this? Because love is the most unnatural thing in the history of the world. And I don't have time to go into the evolutionary thoughts on love and and all, but it does not make sense. Religion, Christianity does not make sense because it calls for sacrifice. It calls to love your neighbor. It calls to love your enemy. And so the reason that John is saying that when we love each other, it's the greatest proof for God is because we are acting against what nature says we should do. And he says, when you love someone, when you are different, when God changes your life, that is how someone will know I am real. I want to encourage you, friends. When God changes your life, that's proof for someone else. God changed my life and the reason he changed it is so someone else could see, man, God is real. Because this person is not the same person that I knew. And he wants to do that in your lives. And he wants to do it in mine. And so, I'm not a lawyer, I could say case adjourned, but what I really want to say is I just want us to look at the clues. Just look at the clues for, for God's existence. What is out there for something more? For something more. If you could just stand I invite the band to come up. We're going to close. I just want to pray for a moment for everyone who's in this room right now. So we just bow our heads and close our eyes. God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for the clues that you've left behind, the clues in each and every one of us. Thank you for love. everything you've done for us. Thank you that you sent your son that we may see your glory. God, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for everyone who is listening to this, who is in earshot of my words, that you may speak to their hearts. Plant more seeds, plant more clues for your existence and speak so clearly
Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that message was exactly what you needed to hear. If you want to know more about our church, you want to get in contact with us, maybe you have a question, head over to kingdomchurch.ca and you will find everything that you need and more. We can't wait to see you. Take care.